Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name is Craig Forces. I am here with Stephanie Carvin over the magic of Zoom, our typical day these days, spending all our time on Zoom. And today, Stephanie, what are we talking about? We are very lucky today to be joined by a special guest, Michelle Tessier, who's the Deputy Director of Operations at CSIS, who will be speaking to us as a part of our Composing the Security and Intelligence Community series, which is focusing on diversity and inclusion and how that's working in the uh, Canadian national security community today. So uh, very happy because uh, she's someone who has a, a wealth of experience in this area, has had a, a full career at CSIS and we're hoping that she'll offer some great insights today. Ms. Tessier, thank you so much for joining us. We're really happy to have you on. It's my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. If I can just start off, we want to make this podcast about diversity and inclusion in, in the community as a part of our larger investigation into this. But I have to ask, how, are, how is the service managing with COVID-19 and all of the new threats as well as a very difficult operating environment? That's a very good question. And it's been challenging, but I'm always really impressed by the creativity, innovation, dedication of our employees. So obviously, I can't go into all the operational details, but I will say that the most important thing for us is the health of our employees and the health of individuals we deal with. And in that respect, we always follow the public health guidelines that are given uh, by the authorities. We all understand we're in a challenging time, so we follow the experts' advice, and then we implement that at work and in our workplace, as I said, when we deal with other members of the public, very much into the hand washing and the physical distancing and all the advice that has been given. So it is challenging. We are adapting. We've never stopped doing our work. To your point about the threat environment, we're certainly continued to look at that, how it's evolving, new threats that are emerging. All of that is continuing. And I will say, in terms of our intelligence production, has probably gone up, uh, which is a good thing because our job is to inform government. So the fact that our government clients are seeking this information and that we're able to provide it, I think, speaks to uh, the strength of our workforce. That's just really fascinating. I just can't imagine being socially distant spies. It just, it's, it's a whole new world that we're, that we're living in. So thank you just for that brief update. And, and I appreciate, obviously, it's a little hard to go into detail, but it, it, it's a very interesting time, <laughs> to put it mildly. But it, it's so great to talk to you because you've had this really interesting career. And I was wondering if you could walk us through it, because not only are you the first female deputy director of operations, which for our audience who may not know, this is the no- generally considered to be the number two position at the service, but you are also the first female assistant director for collections. So maybe you could talk us through your career, how you got into the service. Oh, certainly. I actually joined the service back in, I hate saying the year, it makes me sound so old, but many of the employees weren't even born when I joined the service, of course, but in 1988, and I came in as what is called a media analyst position. Because my degree, my university degree is in journalism. I actually worked as a reporter prior to working for the service. And it's a very similar job in going out, gathering information, analyzing the information, and providing it to clients. So there, there are similarities in the two fields. And I converted over to the intelligence officer stream back in 1989. And during those times, the service, of course, was created from the RCMP. So it was still, I'd say in a bit of a transition period as a civilian security agency, not very well known at all by the Canadian public. And I did both headquarters work and regional field work as is common amongst the intelligence officers. And 
So I found myself, I think, a lot through demographics as being the first woman to do a lot of things, uh, a lot of opportunities I was provided. But most of that, frankly, goes to certainly believing in myself and knowing I could do the job, but also the support of my colleagues and my supervisors. And a lot of times what I tell people is I've been fortunate to have that support, but it shows the importance of that teamwork and of being good managers who recognize their employees and give them those opportunities. So a lot of what I've accomplished certainly has been in the confidence in my ability to do things and the belief that it doesn't matter what your gender is, it doesn't matter really what you are in in that sense, but more what skills you can bring and, and what your experience and knowledge is. And that's why I encourage people, sometimes there are studies that say women typically don't apply for positions they feel they're not qualified for, but men feel that even if they don't meet all the competencies, they can apply for them and show themselves. These are what the studies say. But I have actually heard women say, oh, I don't feel I'm quite there yet. I don't think I really quite meet all of those. And I encourage people to say, just if you feel that you can try it. And in my case, I did, but I'd say almost just as importantly as I was lucky to be surrounded by supervisors and managers and colleagues who supported me and gave me those opportunities. Great. And can you give us a sense, Ms. Tessie, uh, as to your present role? So Deputy Director Operations, what does that mean? What is your function? As our director, David Vigneault, calls it, he calls me the head of operations. So in essence, I'm the ultimate accountability. Obviously, the director is accountable for the organization, but in terms of our operations, what we, our investigations, our operational programs, the directions we give, Certainly at my level, it's it's meant to be not getting into the weeds, although sometimes we all can't help ourselves to do that because we all love that type of work. But it's really meant to ensure that our employees are equipped, that they know what the priorities and programs are, and really supporting the director in his tasks as well and supporting him in his role as a deputy minister in government. So it's really a bit of both, ensuring that we have the proper governance uh, in place to do our operations, obviously being involved with those operations and in some cases approving some of those operations while also ensuring that our director who's accountable for the entire organization feels supported in terms of managing those operations. And and of of course, this wasn't your first executive role. You were also uh, the assistant director for collections and within the bounds of Canadian law, can you explain what that is and how that differs from operations? Certainly. Uh, it's, it's part of our operation. So to give you a very quick snapshot of how my directorate is structured, so we've got our director, then there's myself, deputy director of operations, and under me, I've got two assistant directors who are ADM levels, assistant de- deputy minister levels, the assistant director requirements, and the assistant director collection. The assistant director requirements is responsible for our headquarters operational programs responding to the intelligence requirements of the government of Canada, defining how we're going to meet those and giving the direction for our operational programs. The assistant director collection is responsible for our regional offices. So the individuals who go and collect the information and ensuring that they have the tools, the understanding, the equipment, the accountability to respond to the requirements that are sent their way so that they're collecting the intelligence. And I've been assistant director collection, but I was also Prior to the assistant director requirements position being created, it was the assistant director of operations, and I occupied that position for about a year, and then I became deputy director of operations. So to sum it up, uh, in terms of our intelligence cycle, you've got the intelligence requirements are defined. 
we prioritize those and send them out to our regional offices. They collect the intelligence, comes back in, it's assessed, and then disseminated out to our clients. The person who sits at the top of that full intelligence cycle is a deputy director of operations. We've got one doing the headquarters bit and the other one doing the regional bit. That's a very simplified way of explaining it, but hopefully it, it makes sense. It sounds anything but simple, actually. So it's a very challenging job, but thank you for walking us through it. Ms. Tessie, one of the principles that we're trying to test in the course of this conversation about diversity and inclusion is, is really the justification. What is the justification for diversity and inclusion in a security intelligence service? And, and the hypothesis that we've been testing in our conversations over the course of the series really has two aspects. The first is that we're testing the proposition that there's an ethical responsibility for an intelligence service to reflect the society that it guards, that it acts on behalf of. And then there's also, and this is a, an area where we're especially interested in your expertise, there's also what we call the efficacy argument, the notion that an intelligence service that embraces the full diversity of, in, in the Canadian context, a very diverse society, will be more able, it'll be more capable of performing its critical missions in, in the case of the service of collecting intelligence and then advising the government of Canada because of the aptitudes and skills that it will be able to tap. So I wonder if we could start this conversation by both uh, probing that hypothesis and then uh, asking for maybe some of your direct experiences or observations over the course of your career on where diversity and inclusion comes up as an important, well, in your case, operational consideration for the functions of the service. Absolutely. And that's a very good question. And, you, and you've hit on the right points. First of all, I think just as a responsible employer and an employer who wants to be efficient in what they do, every employee needs to feel included in the organization and welcomed in an organization. It also invites the richness of ideas, of diverse thought. The last thing you want is to get involved into groupthink, where everybody thinks the same, they're all from the same backgrounds. And that doesn't open up to the richness that the world offers writ large and that different types of backgrounds, cultures, education, skill sets can bring to a conversation and, and to the applying the work that you do. But the point I make a lot is that there is no way an intelligence service can operate efficiently without diversity. I can't even understand how that could happen if you don't have that embracing of the richness, as I mentioned, of all the various cultures, but of what we're, we're doing in terms of our work. There needs to be an understanding of the backgrounds, an understanding of why certain individuals may think a certain way or what their experience has been. If you're doing an interview, a very basic example, the service provides advice to our immigration department. And as part of that advice, we often conduct interviews of new uh, immigrants to Canada. Well, if you can't appreciate where that person comes from, and an example I have no problem giving is when I was uh, an investigator, I had to do an interview of somebody who wanted to immigrate to Canada, who, and I, I won't go into the background because I want to respect their privacy, but who when I walked into the room, was physically shaking, trembling, and I couldn't get anywhere with the interview. And, and the translator stopped the interview and said, can you please leave me alone with her for a few minutes? And I walked out of the room and he came and saw me. He goes, you have to understand where she comes from and what an intelligence service means to her. 
And he goes, I've explained to her that Canada's not like, that's not your role, so on and so forth. And so then I sat down and the interview went a lot better. But to this day, I remember that of the, the discomfort I felt of seeing somebody so fearful in front of me. And having more employees who understand that from the get-go, here I was working with a translator who understood that, was able to speak with her, was able to explain what the service is, but also to reach out to her and understanding where she came from. That's just a basic example. But it's an example where it's so important to work with, with a variety of communities, a variety of backgrounds, or a global world in order to do our work, but also to understand that and be able to benefit from the richness of it. So I find that uh, the two points you make, which are obviously overlapping, but are, are absolutely key to being able to have a diverse and inclusive workforce. And, and one of the issues that I've encountered as an instructor in national security law and generally is, and I know, Steph, you and I have talked about this, uh, is we try to teach students to be conscious of cognitive bias in both uh, performing their academic role, but more particularly imagining themselves out uh, in the world of national security. And one of the most prominent cognitive biases that comes up in some of the literature that I've read from uh, cognitive biases and intelligence analysis is mirroring. And so there's a propensity for a person to imagine what they would do uh, if they were in the position of the target rather than imagining what the target would do, given the context in which the target operates. Um, and that seems like a, a particularly pernicious cognitive bias for any intelligence service. And I'm wondering, to, the, to what extent do you think that diversity and inclusion, and in the, in the context of what the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians was studying in their report, which we started this series with, their focus was on the demographic categories that are part of the Employment mm-hmm. Equity Act. To what extent do you think that... Uh, equity, that diversity as measured by those sorts of qualities counter or have the potential to counter these sorts of cognitive biases that could be quite prejudicial to the performance of a security services functions? Well, I think it's very important. And again, it speaks to a lot of the understanding to, to get over either an unconscious or, or frankly a conscious bias and to be able to to understand, in our case, if we are looking at targets, the motivation, sometimes somebody may say something and, and you think, oh, what does this mean? Is this threat related or is it not threat related? But somebody who can understand, no, in that type of a society, this is the type of things they do. Any of that can help bring that sort of assessment to a situation is is very important. And to me, it, we, we've at, we're actually looking at this issue because if I look into gender biases as an example, is there a bias that says, oh, women aren't as bad uh, terrorists as men are? <laughs> Hate to say it, but there's a lot of bad women out there who are pretty radical and indeed can be just as bad. But there tends to be, so, uh, you'll hear a lot in conversations in terms of people either being surprised or not expecting uh, to see that. And that's in terms of gender bias. But again, to have that that different perspective come in and have you thought of this or being able to explain, no, this is how things work here and why the thought process is like this. And I don't honestly think you can do a good job as an intelligence service if you're not being able to benefit from people's knowledge and backgrounds. That is the crux of what an intelligence service is. So for all of those reasons, and it's something that frankly, we realize we need to do more of, we certainly have put measures in place, but we do need to hire more from more diverse backgrounds to ensure we keep having those perspectives in the workplace. Maybe that's a, a nice segue then to discuss 
the services policies and practices in this area. And so uh, acknowledging that this diversity is important to avoid that kind of cognitive monoculture, uh, which can be quite prejudicial to the functions of, of the service. What steps has the service taken, has CSIS taken in order to capture that diversity, to rely on that diversity in its operations and its hiring and, and the deployment of its personnel? We're certainly doing a diagnostic of our hiring practices to see where are there areas that we can improve upon in terms of ensuring that we're able to augment some of our hiring practices or are there areas, gaps that we need to fill to augment the, the diverse nature of our workforce. In terms of employees in the workplace, from the get-go, we have diversity and inclusion training that's that's involved, actually was that highlighted in the NSI COP report. But right now, a lot of the focus is on our recruiting. We are not satisfied with the diversity of our intelligence officers primarily, but not uniquely. So we are looking at, are there areas where we can improve? We recently had as a guest, the president of ABLE, the Association of Black Law Enforcers, and she was a fascinating woman to listen to. And trying to learn from other agencies, are there things that they've learned that they were able to improve upon? So we recognize that we do need to increase the diversity in CSIS. We need to continue to do so and trying to learn from others and develop our own tools, especially looking at where in the process is that failing. And it's very complex to get into the organization. That in and of itself causes us to lose candidates often because it can take over a year to be hired. But that's obviously uh, not the only thing. And so we want to have a more comprehensive analysis of those areas that we can reach out and ensure that we are able to attract a more diverse workforce. When we had the director on, I think about two years ago now, one of the things we asked was there had been a series of lawsuits that had been carried out against CSIS. There had been a settlement. And, and he spoke very candidly about that and said, you know, we have to do better. Uh, I was wondering, two years later, where is the service on some of these issues? What changes did those kind of lawsuits bring, if any? And then on top of that, there, there's now a women's network at the service as well to do mentoring. I was wondering if you could talk about those two uh, different factors in, in how CSIS not only brings people in, but how it manages them and manages diversity inclusion within its, its, its personnel. Certainly. I'll address the lawsuit first. What we've done is we've certainly, there's mandatory harassment training in the service. We've modified our code of conduct to ensure that it's crystal clear in terms of what will not be tolerated in the organization. We ensure that in terms of performance management, there are commitments, key commitments for all managers and supervisors and employees, frankly, in terms of ensuring that they promote and get involved and ensure there is a healthy workplace and workplace environment. We've looked at our human resourcing policies. So we've done a number of things to ensure that employees feel that if they are subject to harassment, that they can at that point uh, make a complaint or uh, bring it up. We have a, an internal conflict management unit that is fantastic. I have great respect for the work they do. And that's encouraged as well so that people can use those tools to avoid getting into a situation that then leads to a complaint. And I will say, sitting on the uh, executive committee table, when we are assessing our managers, how they treat their employees is number one. It's the number one 
commitment that we look at. And you could be great operationally, but if if you've got issues in managing the employees, that's a big uh, issue for us. So much more cognizant and making it easier for the employees to raise those issues. The fear of reprisal has always been of concern. And so with that, though, needs to be the importance of creating transparent human resourcing policies. When it's not transparent, people don't know what goes on. They think there may be favoritism. And that's where the fear of reprisal comes in. So all of that goes hand in hand. And you have to have all those factors in place so that the employees feel that they have a comfortable workplace, they can raise issues, they understand how staffing is being done. And that leads away from that fear and from an unhealthy work environment. And at the end of the day, you can't really do your work without a good team of employees. And I think encouraging that is important. So if I look at the Women's Network, I'm very happy and thrilled really that this was created. It's really meant as a support network. And I'm involved as an example in mentoring a a couple of the employees and to learn from everybody's experience and to be able to just solicit advice in a confidential manner, if you so choose to do it that way, to, to look at models of leadership and learn from others what they've been through. That can speak a lot. I think all of us benefit from having a safe space. All of us benefit from being able to share our experience and get somebody else's perspective. Sometimes we think, is it just me or did I misinterpret that? And I see the Women's Network as very much being that and attracting speakers and looking at people who've been successful and what were the issues they dealt with, but also openly talking about those issues. For me, was one of the, the best things I hope that's come out of that network. And I really enjoy mentoring the employees I do. And I actually tell them, use me more, whatever I can do to support that and support other initiatives as well. I feel very responsible in using those opportunities to do that. I would want anybody who feels that they could benefit from either my experience or an experience of a colleague, they should absolutely be able to do so and feel free to reach out. So I find the Women's Network structures that in a way that makes it easier for people to do. I think it's a great initiative and and I applaud it and I'm a big supporter. Ms. Tessie, one of the issues that arose in the NZCOP report, uh, although it wasn't particular to the service, it was just an observation in general, was that diversity and inclusion issues, in their view, were sometimes siloed, uh, that they were largely a human resources issues, and, and that there would be buy-in at the senior level of management, but that buy-in wouldn't necessarily diffuse through the organization. This was one of their concerns. It sounds from your discussion just now that there's a concerted effort uh, on the part of uh, managers at your level and, and above and presumably also below to make this a priority preoccupation and something that's a part of the core culture of the institution and not simply something that's sidelined to a discrete human resources issue. Is that a fair characterization? Do you see that diffusion ongoing? Yes, absolutely. And, and I want to take the opportunity to mention that we do have a gender-based analysis, GBA plus unit as well looking to do just that. And I, I referred earlier to some of the gender bias that may exist even in our operations. And so when we look at GBA plus initiatives, we do want to include it horizontally and that in everything we do. In our messaging, we were talking about COVID earlier in, in our operations. Uh, what are the biases? What are we taking into consideration? Absolutely. And I think there's more we can do, but it is recognized and it's identified and we're trying to involve it in all our initiatives. And I highlight the operations bit a lot because obviously it's our core mandate, 
but because we want to avoid having that silo where all this is just an HR thing that sits somewhere in the corner and there's no, it's not actually. It's part of everything we do, of course, in our human resourcing, but also in terms of our actual core mission. We've talked a lot about the environment that you're working in and your career and how you got there. Again, being number two in Canada's security intelligence service is uh, no small gig. So I was wondering if you could perhaps walk us through a, a typical day. I don't know if there's such thing as a typical day in COVID world, but I'd be very curious to hear how a day in the life works for the DDO. Sure. I get up at about quarter to five in the morning to work out because I'm, I love uh, working out. So uh, I get up very early in the morning to, to do my workouts. I'm a runner, so I do mostly running. But the exciting part of my entire career in the service has been your day is never what it's supposed to be, ever. And certainly in this job, I've never had a day where my calendar stayed stable. Many people are in that position, but certainly my <laughs> calendar has never stayed what it's supposed to be. Certainly we have, like a lot of organizations, a lot of key meetings within the executive committee with a director. Obviously, I work very closely with David Vigneault, as well as with my colleagues on the executive committee, my assistant directors. And we often get intelligence briefings in the mornings, updates as to what's been happening, what are some of the key files. We get the expert analysts to come up and tell us uh, some of the, the key evolving threats or issues that have been raised. That's extremely useful because it keeps us aware of, as I mentioned, some of the key files and some of the evolving uh, issues that may come up. We have a lot of meetings uh, and discussions with our interdepartmental colleagues, be it Privy Council Office, Global Affairs, Public Safety, CSC, Communication Security Establishment. So many issues that are dealt with horizontally we'll discuss. I have a lot of meeting with our lawyers because, of course, we we have operations for which we have to go in front of the federal court. That's a big file, as you can imagine. Oh, uh, I can imagine. <laughs> <in terms laughs> this whole podcast, our, yeah. Yes, in terms of getting our warrants. So in my case, a lot of meetings, but a lot of meetings with colleagues, with my employees to advance our operations. Being in charge of our operations, a lot of it has to do with here are the key issues, here are the key files. I'd almost divided it in a way, one of the, what are we briefing downtown on? Downtown being Privy Council Office and our interdepartmental colleagues or the ministers. What are we informing government on? And then the other one, what are the key operational files that we need to manage? What are the issues? Is there an issue I need to deal with or intervene in or just hear about? Those are probably the two key things is what we're engaged with our government clients and then managing the operations in our regional offices and all the issues that may come out of that. So a lot of meetings, a lot of discussions, a lot of emails, but always very fascinating. I was out at the 4 a.m. running. But it sounds like an absolutely fascinating job or maybe no days alike, but just man, juggling and running just sounds like a, a very tiring day. The, the one thing that I forgot to mention that I do want to mention is because it also speaks a bit to the COVID, but we have a lot of international partners as well. And I've made it one of my key tasks to maintain really strong relationships with my counterparts. 
we do travel a lot as an organization. We travel a lot within the country because we have regional offices throughout the country and we have foreign stations and we have a lot of key international partners. I do want to mention that as well because living in the world we live in, there are no borders, although we're feeling the borders now, I would say. But, and we see it with the pandemic. We see how in the global world, how important it is to work with our key partners. So I did want to mention that, but... Uh, just one more thing to add to the list. <laughs> yes, exactly. Mastasia, at the end of uh, our podcast with our guests, we asked them on behalf of all the students who may be listening to this, if they have any career advice, they might give a person interested in a career like your own uh, and are now looking forward from presumably their university education days. Uh, so do you have any pearls of wisdom that you might offer up students out there with an interest? I don't know if they're pearls of wisdom. I wouldn't credit myself with that. But just looking back, I think, first of all, I'll, I'll use it as a recruitment pitch that CSIS is a great place to work. I've been here for 32 years for a reason. And the fact that it evolves all the time, it's certainly never a, a dull moment working here. So certainly very interesting work. And a lot of my friends say to me, it's fascinating to see how much you enjoy your work. They don't know all the details of my work, obviously. So you have to be able to, to keep that to yourself. But uh, it's easier now that I'm in a public role, but they envy me for enjoying what I do, which hopefully a lot of people are in that situation, but that's my recruitment pitch. That so is a wonderful place to work. I would say in terms of advice, if you were to have asked me, oh, would you have been the deputy director of operations when I was out in Toronto region working in that city as an investigator, I would have said, no, it's not even fathomable for me. And so I guess it's don't limit yourself and take those opportunities. And certainly I look back and I think, oh, there are things I would have loved to have done that we're doing now that either weren't available then or were available. And I chose not to undertake those opportunities. And so it goes a bit to what I was saying earlier about some studies say that women don't always apply because they feel they don't meet all those competencies. But it's take those opportunities. What seems something that can be realized, can likely be realized and seize those opportunities because there's just so much to offer right now, I think, in the world and in terms of what one does throughout their career that don't let those obstacles hold you back. The other thing for me that was very important, and I'm, again, I mentioned it earlier, but is it's a team sport. It really is a team sport in one's career. And that is with your peers, with your colleagues, both inside and outside of your organization. And I've been extremely uh, fortunate to have been supported by my peers. And it is a team sport. This is not an individual battle that one fights on its own. And, and one of the best pieces of advice I received uh, when I started as an intelligence officer in CSIS, because it can be very intimidating. You've got to make a lot of decisions and you're out there and you're alone and and can be intimidating to know what you should or shouldn't do. And they said, you are not an island. And I never forgot that. You are not an island. There's always somebody out there who you can speak to and reach out for support. And when I look at the CSIS Women's Network, that's one of the, the, the best things about it. It's a network of support. It's structured that way. It exists so that people can reach out to it. But I think working with confidence, I frankly didn't always have the confidence I felt I probably should have only to, to get into a situation and say, oh yeah, I can manage that. And it goes back to having that confidence in one's ability. 
but really seize those opportunities. I look at some of the female leaders around the world or in my peer group, and I look at what do they do well that I could do more of. And another piece of advice I often give to individuals is look around you, look around those managers or individuals, and you never stop learning. So always seize opportunities to learn. And one of those is what are those individuals doing that you like and what are they doing that you don't like? And adapt that to your style. You can always learn from other people. You can always learn from somebody's strengths and their weaknesses. And you have to have a lot of self-reflection all the time, self-awareness, especially if you want to grow as a manager in an organization. And then, as I was mentioning, never stop learning. Keep taking courses. Keep reading. Go get information out there. Challenge yourself to learn a different language. Challenge yourself to, to keep studying in a certain field or just of, in an interest. I went and got my sommelier certificate because I <laughs> wanted a good excuse to drink wine. But I became very passionate <laughs> about wine and took a sommelier certificate. And it's, it just it completely changes your mind from your daily stress of your work. So you can never stop learning. So those are, are probably some of the, the pieces of advice I, I'd give. That's good advice, especially for people who run a podcast. We're always interested in encouraging more people to go and learn more by listening to podcasts. <laughs> I was gonna, just going to say that. I'm like, yes, add podcasts to that list. It's, it's a great piece of advice. <laughs> and, and thank you very much, Ms. Tessie. I think uh, we have satisfied your own admonishment by offering new content to our listeners. It's been a very instructive and informative conversation we've had over the last half an hour. And so thank you for taking the time with us uh, this morning to have this chat. It's uh, much appreciated. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you again for the invitation. And the more people can know about the organization and anything, if it encourages individuals to reach out, I think that's to, to CSIS or, or to their own organizations. And I applaud you for highlighting the importance of diversity and inclusion. I applaud you for raising that topic and more than happy to talk about it. So thank you for that opportunity. Thank you so much. And to everyone listening, we'll talk to you next time.